Well, beloved, if you will remain standing and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. I'm going to begin reading after we pray and ask God's blessing upon us. I'm going to read from verse 21 through the end of that chapter. So let's pray together. Now, our gracious Heavenly Father, it is in Christ's name that we come to you, Lord, asking for your blessing of enlightenment and understanding, discretion and faith. Lord, we pray that you would continue to work in each of us as individuals and as a body to grow up this church in peace and love and charity. Lord, continue your work in our midst Lord, glorifying your name, helping us, Lord, understand the glory of your word, Lord, its value, its light, its preciousness, and all of that increase in us today. Lord, as we look at and examine true compassion, particularly as it relates to forgiveness, Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Give us soft hearts this morning that we would examine ourselves and compare ourselves to our blessed Lord. And Lord, where we fall short, we pray, Lord, that we would seek repentance, that we would seek restoration, Lord, and we would seek to walk not only with you, Lord, but with our brothers and sisters in peace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to begin reading at verse 21. Hear now the word of the living God. And then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. And Jesus said to him, well, I do not say to you up to seven times but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. And so the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii and seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him into prison until he should pay back what was owed. Now when his fellow slaves saw saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, 
I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave and in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. And my heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Most of the time when a conversation between believers where Matthew 18 uh, enters into the conversation, it's typically centered around that text related to church discipline. But Matthew 18 is a much broader and deeper text than just relating to church discipline. In fact, you can see at verse 1 of chapter 18 that there was a faction that had occurred among the disciples. And verse 1 says that at that time the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? This faction had created some offenses and now this has been brought to Jesus, and they we don't know who the disciples particularly are. We know Peter's involved in it, but we don't know the others. So they bring this offense to Jesus, and they want him to settle the matter. They want an answer. It had obviously created a rift between the disciples, hard feelings, no doubt, For them to bring this to Jesus, you can imagine they had probably spent hours, if not days, if not an ongoing for some period of time, at least bickering with one another about who really deserved to be the greatest in the kingdom. And we see by this that even though the disciples have been walking with Jesus for some time now, they still have this residue of Judaism in them. Judaism taught and still teaches that there is this hierarchical class among the people of God. Due to education, offices, and whatnot, that there is in their system of Judaism these ranks and there's the, the, the rank and file membership and there are others that are more honorable and more worthy and greater than the others. And it looks like the apostles, or excuse me, the disciples at this time are struggling with that, bringing that Judea, the Judaic teaching into, well, their lives and applying it to their own situation. And I think that's even why Peter comes to him in verse 24. It seems to lend itself. The text doesn't tell us there's anyone else around. It seems like Peter's going to the Lord himself. And it's almost this one-on-one situation. And Peter 
comes to the Lord and says, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? It seems that Peter gleaned that from what Jesus taught in the chapter. This is what Peter hears Jesus saying to him. I need to be a forgiving person. I need to have compassion on my brothers. I need to be the one willing to forgive. So, Lord, how many times shall I forgive them? Judaism taught that it was fine to forgive one three times for the same offense, but not four. And it could be that even Peter understood that Jesus had such a higher uh, a form of morality and ethics and religion that, Jesus, that Peter may have even doubled it in order to impress the Lord. I, we don't know. The text doesn't tell us anything. We don't know where Peter got this number seven times. It may be out of Leviticus, but we still aren't sure. But he comes to Jesus and he puts that number seven out there. Up to seven times. And then Jesus demonstrates to Peter that he really hadn't gleaned what he was teaching in these situations when he really taught him about compassion. He says, no, 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 Peter, I tell you not seven times, 70 times seven. You can imagine Peter's... uh, how Peter took that. Well, this morning I want to address this chapter, but particularly the parable of the offending servant and lay before all of us here this morning the need, the need to be forgivers, the need that we have in the kingdom of God to be forgiving Christians. And we can do this by looking at this chapter and seeing that the very heart of the chapter itself is compassion. That compassion is at the very heart of being a forgiver. If you've struggled with forgiving others, Maybe you've even struggled asking for forgiveness. The very heart of that work and that fruit of the kingdom, brothers and sisters, will be compassion. Now, what is compassion? Well, for our lesson this morning, and biblically speaking, compassion is a compound between, is a, a compound form of love and sorrow for another. Compassion is another form of love. It's the extension, if you will, of sympathizing with someone, willing willing to, to sympathize with one for their misfortunes or even distresses. Compassion excites love to action and can even include suffering with one another. Our Lord Jesus fits that definition perfectly. In fact, 
our Lord begins demonstrating to us what real compassion is by even entertaining this question that is brought to him about who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, our Lord Jesus could have said, you should know this by now. He could have rebuked them. But I think we're on safe ground to infer from the text that this is obviously a real offense, that this was a real problem that Jesus recognized that it needed to be addressed and handled, that there needed to be some instruction given or the disciples were not, would not be able to pull through this anger that was being exhibited in their midst. Our Jesus does this by first pulling a child to himself in the first part of the chapter. And of course, he deals with humility Well, let me just read it. He says, truly, I say, this is verse three, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Obviously, I think Jesus is confronting their arrogance and their pride by drawing attention to this child that Jesus puts in his lap and teaching them that this is like the kingdom of heaven, that you must be converted, you must be trusting, you must be humble like this child who, who is without pretension, who completely is subject to what he's told to do, and he does it like a child ought to when instructed by an adult. But Jesus goes further than that. Now Jesus begins to address the offense, if you will see right there in verse 6 when he talks about causing one of these little ones to stumble. Our Jesus shows compassion for these little ones by defending them, if you will. When he says, listen, it would be better that a millstone be tied around your neck and you be cast in the depth of the sea, never to have existed That our Lord is saying that God is the champion of those that can't defend themselves. That God comes to the aid of those who are helpless. He has compassion on these little ones who are called and made to stumble. And that's what we see here as an offense something large enough to cause one to stumble in their faith. I wish I could say that we have matured over these several thousand years in the church, but I'm afraid that we are still just as weak in our understanding of forgiveness and offenses as we always were. It never seems to fail, even when I sit among pastors or the most educated, that there just doesn't seem to have a, a, a good understanding on what offenses are. And we see too much leadership spending too much time over things that we would call overspilt milk. 
hurt feelings, hangnails, and I'm being a little facetious, versus majoring on the things that are the most important. You see, brothers and sisters, we have a highly offensive culture, not just outside the church, but inside the church. And we have a highly sensitive culture. Those two do not go well together, outside the church and inside the church. And, and there are numerous examples in my own past pastoral experience, and I'm sure you've seen them too, where there has been hours and hours and weeks and months and even years spent on trying to address someone's hurt feelings because they're never satisfied by no matter what they hear, they're just never satisfied. Even when people do ask for forgiveness, they just can't seem to accept it. Now, brothers, listen to me, brothers and sisters, that's sinful. That's sinful. And it has taken churches like this one and many other churches, and it has caused havoc, and it has caused there to be rifts and uh, just uh, upheavals in the church because we don't understand what a real offense is. Calvin wrote a great article. I don't have it here. I can provide it for you where he had to write, even in his day, what are biblical offenses and what are not because of the highly the high sensitivity that many church members have if they don't get their way or someone says something that they don't like. Brothers and sisters, not everything is an offense, and it's not intended to be an offense. What Jesus is dealing with here are those offenses that are serious enough to cause one to stumble in their faith. In their faith, that's a serious matter. That is, if I were to act out in such a way that you could take offense that how can this pastor act in such a way to, and, and to cause you to wonder, do I even need to go to church anymore? What's going on? What are we doing here? I think I'll just sit home. That would be an offense. For me to act out in such outlandish character and behavior that would cause God's people to wonder if they either need to find another church or they just need to stay home. So that's kind of what we're dealing with here. Psalm 78 speaks of this compassion when it says that God, he being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity. We see that's the emphasis. It, compassion excites love to action. That's Psalm 78. We see a similar action in Luke 15 with the prodigal father. He had compassion on his son. And what did he do when he saw his son coming up the road? He ran out to meet his son and he fell on his neck with kisses. His compassion for his wayward son moved him to run and meet him before he even got to the driveway and to embrace him. 
And that's the kind of love, that's the compassion, and that's the love that we're talking about this morning. Well, let's look at the parable itself, and then I want to give us some principles related to forgiveness and then some warnings, and then we should, that should finish us up this morning. Well, notice that what Jesus teaches us is that there was a king who wanted to settle accounts. He's looking over the books and he decides that it's time to bring in some of these debtors and demand payment. He can do that. It's just, he's not doing anything that's unjust. It is very common for commentators to point out that the king here represents God and that he is demonstrating in this reconciling of accounts what is just, but also what happens when this offending servant who spent lavishly on whatever, we don't know, but spent a staggering amount of money. It's, it's highly improbable that Again, we're not to force this parable to say too much. In fact, Calvin even says, relating to this parable, he says, just let it stand the way it is and don't force all of its parts to mean something. And I think he is right there. But nevertheless, this servant owes the king an outlandish sum of money. So much so that even today, that number would be in the billions, in the billions of dollars if we were to put, if we were forced to figure out exactly what these weights and measures meant. Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of days of employment are related to the amount of money that this servant has squandered and now he cannot account for it. This king who wished to settle accounts, notice he did. He brings in one who owed him 10,000 talents and a staggering sum of money. And he did not have the means, the text, to repay. Now, it, I think it is clear, I think it should be clear, that where Jesus is taking this, as he is addressing Peter's comments, he is relating, look, from this heart of compassion, the compassion that this king is going to have on this servant is related to every believer. That God has forgiven every believer an astronomical sin debt. astronomical like that offending servant he says in verse 25 he did not have the means to repay his lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made and notice the slave responds in what looks to be genuine humility it looks to be a genuine, sincere 
sorrow and humility over his unwillingness to at that time to be able to repay him and that what does he say he says he prostrated himself before him saying have patience with me and I will repay you everything now even that statement demonstrates how disconnected the servant is with the amount of money he owes so much like sinners are with God How often do we even in our prayers only recount just a handful of sins, even like I did this morning for the sake of time and brevity and and, and touching on the larger issues, but brothers and sisters, even in our personal lives, we are often just just disconnected from the reality of the debt we owe to God. That's where this servant was. There's no way he could pay back this sum of money. And yet, what does, how does the king demonstrate compassion for the plight that this servant finds himself in? He's, He's unable to pay it back. He's groveling before the king. The king's heart went out to this servant. And so what does he do? In verse 27, and the Lord of that slave felt compassion. Now notice, what does compassion do? Compassion excites love. And what does does love do? He released him and forgave him the debt. Now that's a picture that our Lord Jesus is teaching Peter about sin and offenses. I mean, how have we, how many offenses have we piled up before the face of our God? Look what we've been forgiven. Look what we continue to be forgiven before the face of our God. Insurmountable, innumerable, overwhelming. And yet our God continues His compassion for us, it excites his love to do what? To forbear and patience and grace and teach and instruct us and to continue to work with us all along the way. But this servant wasn't genuine. In fact, he begins to demonstrate hypocrisy. And he goes out and then... What Jesus is pointing out here is the insurmountable debt he owed the king, but now he goes and he finds one that owed him uh, just a hundred denarii. I I mean, we're talking about pocket change compared to what he owes. Uh, Minuscule amount. And notice how this man's greed and hatred and hatred lashed out at the one who owed him money. He did not have grace in his heart. He did not have compassion toward the one that he had loaned money to and is unable to pay him back. He said he found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii and he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. 
I mean, what a difference in how the king treated him and how he is treating his friend, his peer, his servant, you see. His fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. And he could repay this back. This would have been an easy sum to pay back. It would not have been a problem at all for this servant to pay this sum of money back. However, the offending servant would not allow it. He was unwilling, the text says in verse 30, and went and threw him into prison until he should pay back what was owed. His fellow slaves saw what had happened and they noticed verse 31, deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. They were grieved over What were they grieved by? They were grieved. How could one who has received so much be so petty? Isn't that a similarity between us and God and us and one another? How can we, who've been given so much in Christ, forgiven so much, and continue to be forgiven so much. How can we be so petty with one another? And that's where Jesus is taking this. So what happened? Well, the Lord, the master summoned him and notice in verse 32, notice what he called him, wicked slave, wicked that one who does not have compassion in their heart for someone either in their situation or even in less of a situation and there's, there's this anger, there's this hatred. Notice he took him, he, he, he grabbed him by the throat and he says, give me what you owe me now. This aggressiveness And the king says, you are a wicked person. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have also had mercy on your fellow slave and in the same way that I had mercy on you? Now that's that's the heart of this. And Jesus is addressing this faction between the disciples. And, and, and addressing this to Peter because I think what's inferred by the context is Peter is really struggling with forgiving his brothers, these disciples. Somehow he's been offended. And Jesus is using this parable to teach Peter to have compassion for his brothers and not to be so critical and so harsh against them, not to be so petty with them when he has received so much from the Lord. Verse 34 tells us that 
this king was moved with anger and handed him over to the torturers until he should pay, repay all that was owed him. I think that's just a, a, a parabolic way of describing hell. All those sins. It's an innumerable number. Okay. And then verse 35 is, it's the motivating part here. He says, my heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. He's really, really helping Peter here understand, Peter, you have to exercise forgiveness with your brothers. Well, let me give you some principles are some, some elements that real, true forgiveness contains. Okay. Reconciliation, there must be guilt dealt with. We must allow, and this is the compassion part. Even Jesus tells us in Matthew 18, right? He says, listen, if your brother sins, if your brother sins go and show him his fault. Compassion. I don't want my brother to be in sin. I don't want my brother to be offending the Lord. I don't want my brother to be walking in this sin. I don't want my brother offending others. I, if I find my brother or my sister uh, uh, offending, I'm gonna, I want to go to him. That's compassion. We've trained ourselves in this sense, and I'm not talking about petty things. I'm talking about things worthy of going to someone about when we talk about, you know, when you mind your own business. Well, this is the church's business. This is the kingdom of God. Until every sin is paid for. This is not a small matter. This is something worthy of our attention and focus this morning. Brothers and sisters, it's costly when we sit down with someone and we work out reconciling with one another, working through the offense with one another. It takes effort. It takes a desire to want to do so. It takes an, a desire to want my brother and sister to be right before the Lord and me and them be right as well. It can cost us time, money. If you've loaned someone money and they have not paid it back, you, you may write it off. Once you sit down with them and you discuss this with them and, and you tell them, listen, I, you know, what I'm doing here is I'm going to write this debt off. When you forgive someone, it also removes any need you have to go tell others about it. When you are reconciled with someone, when you work out forgiveness, then, then there's no need for you to go announce it from the rooftop, is there? It's been dealt with. It's been handled. Forgiveness requires, beloved, a great love of God to a sinner. And, and, and I think the, the reality is we just don't want to take the time to do such things. We don't want to pay that price. Thirdly, 
forgiveness is conditional. There are conditions to be met when one asks for forgiveness and when one receives that forgiveness. It presupposes that the one asking is sincere and genuine in their confession of guilt and sin, if you will. I'll give you a um, heartbreaking story, but it's one that too often happens. When the word of God is not our standard, when Christ is not our standard, when, when there's no compassion, when our, when our compassion is weak, let me put it that way, when our compassion is weak and our love is weak. I, I had, a, I had a, a circumstance one time where there were two parties, there was separation, they, they were, had been trying to reconcile for years. We finally had an opportunity to sit down with one another and I thought the Lord had mightily blessed the evening. There was uh, confession of sin. There was uh, forgiveness asked for and there was forgiveness granted. There was a clear articulation of what the offense was, what the sin was. There was a clear articulation of uh, of accepting that forgiveness and restoration of fellowship. There were tears, there were hugs, there were kisses, and we ended the evening, I thought, on a high note. Two days later, I receive a phone call from the original offended party explaining to me that they did not believe that that was sincere forgiveness that they just weren't they just weren't confident that this party really really meant it and that they wanted another visitation when in keeping with these principles I said no and they were shocked why not because we don't go on emotion. Your emotions are not the biblical rule that we live by. According to the word of God, everything happened as biblically it was supposed to. And you're going to have to trust God for them and they have to trust God for you. And we're not going to do this. We're not going to wear people out because you can't handle your emotions. And I believe I honor the Lord by doing that and not exasperating the other party. But this is the point, beloved. There's this conditional element here that's involved in forgiveness. I will confess my offense to you and upon condition that I'm going to make it right. If there's restitution, I'm going to make it. If there's someone I need to go to that I've slandered you to, I'm going to go make it right with them. And the forgiving party says, well, Pastor Stanfield, thank you. I will accept that uh, your confession of sin and guilt, and I will receive it. And I, upon doing so, I promise to treat you as a brother in Christ. I promise to love you. I promise to honor you. And I will not slander your name if I have that 
if I were given the opportunity. I won't do that because we have reconciled and we have made things right. So there's conditional elements involved here. Fourthly, biblical forgiveness requires a real confession of sin. There's a confession involved. If, if there is a, if one if one party causes another party to stumble in their faith, they need to confess that to them. Paul addresses this in Romans 14, a, a, a really good passage to look to in light of this conversation here, or this sermon here, but there must be a confession of sin. And, and listen, and here's, here's what I mean by this. Too often, and I've seen this among people that ought to know better, what goes, what, what falls into place as, as repentance is, I'm sorry you misunderstood me. I'm sorry you got your feelings hurt. That's not confession of sin. I'm sorry you took what I said all wrong. And there's never a confession from the guilty party. That's not asking forgiveness. That's not biblical forgiveness because from the heart, that confession is, I'm asking you to forgive me for the way I acted. I, could, I know it caused you anguish. It grieved you. And it really caused you to sit back and consider whether or not you need to be going to church here. I'm, I'm grieved that I acted in such a way that would cause you to struggle in your faith. Would you forgive me for being a stumbling block for you? It has to have a confession of sin. Fifth, forgiveness is a promise. I promise that I will labor in Christ not to do this again. That's the offender. I promise that I will work hard in Christ. I'm a, I will work hard in Christ not to do this, say this, or act that way again. And pray for me. And then there's a promise on the other side. I promise to accept that. I promise to accept your confession. I promise to accept your explanation. I promise to accept what you've said. I promise that I accept it and I'm not going to turn around and come back and attack you for it. The sixth matter is that biblical forgiveness is a commandment. Forgive us of our debts as we forgive others. What does, how does Jesus end the parable? My heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. It's a commandment. We are commanded by our heavenly father, by the, the one that we have received so much from. He says, listen, now you display that grace to others. Why would you hold, why would you withhold forgiveness when we have all been forgiven so much? When the things that do offend us are often, I'm not going to say they're small compared to the many sins that God's forgiven. 
with each one of us, right? I'm not going to say they're insignificant and they don't matter. They do matter. But compared to the mountain of sin we have before God, it's a small matter. It's a commandment. Brothers and sisters, we do not have the prerogative. If we sit down and tell somebody who's come to us and they have asked for forgiveness, they have confessed their sins, they have confessed their guilt, they have articulated the issue, and they have asked biblically for our forgiveness, how dare we ever say no? No! That is a sin, and it's a greater sin than the offense that caused all of it. You know why? Because your heavenly Father has forgiven you so much. How dare you withhold the petty things from another? Number seven. Last one for today. Biblical forgiveness has a covenantal element to it. And, and, and this really only applies, I've thought about this, because I preached these things like 15 years ago, 13 years ago. And I thought about it, and I thought, you know, this really does have an, 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 an application to the intimates, husbands and wives, parents and children, um, pastor congregation, congregation pastor, if you will, that there's a covenantal element related to this forgiveness because there are promises made, as we've already talked about, but there's also the covenantal side of it. There's actions to be taken. There's actions to be taken. It's not static. Forgiveness is not passive. It's active. It's we're doing something. We are, we are going out not only to confess one's sin and guilt, but then we're also making every effort that I can to demonstrate to the offended that I am working on changing my behavior and own heart the, the, the best I can by making sure they see effort being performed. If I have a loose tongue, what do they witness at lunch? A more controlled tongue. If I have an anger issue and I just lash out, what do they do? What do they see me working on? They see me working on patience. They see me working on calmness. They see me controlling my temper, if you will. They see, that is, they see me working on that, and they go, wow, he really did mean what he said. And it's the same way for the offendee when, when we see each other. I mean, because all too often our response to any type of offense or sin is, well, I just won't have anything to do with them. And we have to be careful with this. There's lines to be drawn, particularly when you have marriage relationships that... Um, are dangerous, are proved to be dangerous. Um, we would never put the woman in a situation to act as if now the husband's safe because he confessed it was wrong 
you know, for him to batter her. So we have to be careful with this. But nevertheless, there are steps that can be taken that basically demonstrate that both parties understand forgiveness and what's required and that both parties are working that out on their side related to their situation. Well, brothers and sisters, forgiveness is no small matter. And in the kingdom of God, the truth is we are, we are both offenders and offendees. And we need to really wrap our minds and our hearts and our hands around what biblical forgiveness is and practice it in the church so what? We can have a healthy, vibrant, um, uh, uh, loving, compassionate church. And that's what the world needs to see. When that doesn't happen, you know what the world sees? Hypocrisy. It's easy to preach about them and not really deal with what's going on in our house. And that's happened far too much and far too often. When we begin practicing these biblical principles, just like the disciples, they're having a problem, and Jesus addresses it. And he does so by demonstrating what compassion looks like. Compassion is the heart of forgiveness. If we lack that compassion, we will lack the practice of extending forgiveness when asked or even asking for forgiveness when needed. And may God have mercy on us. May God continue to grow us up and lead us in this path of righteousness. Let's pray. Now, Father, bless your holy name. Help us, O oh Lord, conform to your word, Lord, this standard of forgiveness, this is not a small thing. It's not an easy thing at all. It's one that we don't rush to practice, but it's one we need to spend more time on. So, Father, help us with this topic of forgiveness. Help us, O oh Lord. Give us great wisdom so that it can be exercised properly. Give us great discretion and discernment, Lord, so we don't cause any to stumble, even trying to practice it, but doing it in such a wrong way, Lord, it brings, it brings uh, harm and not good. Now, Lord, we love you, and we want to walk in your ways, and we want your blessing upon us, and we want you to teach us your ways. So, Lord, as we come now to this supper, we pray that you would build us up and feed our faith and enliven our hope for the days to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.